you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to the next edition of Bare Naked Money. It's Josh and myself as per the semi-usual. We're going to have a chat today, a bit of a planning topic, and we're going to talk about real estate. I, I don't know if we could call this pandering, Josh, would you call this pandering to have another podcast where we discuss real estate? I would say no. This is, we're taking a bit of a different look at it this time. We're talking about how it can actually make sense for you this time around and not uh, being that critical as we have been in the past of some of the, the real estate decisions that are being made right no, and that's fair. Again, we're trying to put our twist to it, but uh, what this has been born out of is I get a question and the team gets a question on the semi-regular about, hey, I'm going to pick up another piece of real estate. I need some money for a down payment. So that question, I think, probably comes to me at least once a week. And, and the reasons for this can be many. It can be anything from, I think this is a good investment opportunity to, hey, I found the house I want to retire in. I'm not ready to retire quite yet, but I want to pick it up now so that I have it in the future, or it's maybe a cottage for the family to hang out in. There can be a whole bunch of, of different reasons for it. And depending on the reason as to what may be the way forward. So Josh, are there any other examples you can think of why or how this question gets asked to you? Or does that pretty much? I, I think. Just to be clear, we're mostly talking today about buying a second piece of real estate. This is not so much looking at buying your, your family home, but more so buying a second piece of real estate, whether that's a vacation property, a rental property, somewhere in between. So I, I think you're right. I think the way that it usually gets asked to me is either, does this make sense? Can I do this? Can I actually handle it financially? Or like you said, Hey, I need some money for this because they've already made a decision. Yep. Yeah. No, and that's, that's absolutely fair. We'll come at this from a few different ways just to get all of it out. So I guess at the outset, one of the first things to understand that informs all of the advice that we'll give is this kind of a temporary thing. Now I've had it, I've had it a couple of times last couple of weeks where people have found their retirement home, they're not quite ready to retire, but they want to pick it up because they found it. And so they're going to hold on to it for a year or two or three, maybe rent it out and then sell off where they are now and, and move to the property. So the, that's, you know, not an atypical thing. You know, a lot of people think like that and move like that. And it largely does, it doesn't have to change your overall financial plan per se. If you have roughly the same amount of money tied up in real estate before and after the transaction, then you're probably not disturbing your overall plan too much. So you're really de dealing with something that's a timing issue. So then the question becomes, if you have resources to, to either buy the property outright using investments or how much of a down payment do you put on or how much do you finance or what are the options there? Is that something that uh, comes across to your desk ever, Josh? Yeah, for sure. It, and I guess the first thing that when we're talking about timing, the first thing that I think about is, okay, like how much time are we talking about? Are we talking about six months or are we talking about six years? Because just to challenge one thing that you said, Colin, I think if you're talking about years, then I think it does change the financial circumstances almost without a doubt. That's a long time to carry two properties, even if you're just going to borrow temporarily to pay a very low interest rate mortgage right now. 
and then pay it off when you sell your primary residence or your current home three years down the road, that's still going to change things a lot for you financially because not only do you have mortgage payments at interest, but you also have your property tax, you have renovations, you have utilities, you have a whole bunch of things that, that may come up that cost you money over that period of time that are really new expenses for your financial circumstance. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. It's a continuum. The longer the timeline, the more impactful that it could be now. In the situations I've had the last couple of weeks, the attention's been, hey, I'm going to pick it up. It's a really tight rental market right now, so I know I can rent this out for two years. Sure. Therefore, I may get a little bit further ahead over that time period. So, yeah, you're right. There, there can be nuances. And again, I'm, I'm speaking in broad generalities for sure. And, oh, wait, we didn't start with the disclaimer. Don't take any of this as advice. Do not listen to this podcast to do anything other than call your advisor and have a conversation about your situation. The proper use for the information you're going to receive today is to think about, formulate a question and maybe some plans and go see an advisor. We really should have started with that. Maybe Catherine could put that back at the start. <laughs> I think there's a disclaimer there that reads something along those lines. Anyway, go on. Yes. So anyway, again, in the situation, then maybe we should just take examples. Maybe that's the best way to go through this. So you know, the one that was very you know top of mind for me the last couple weeks is it happened to me twice is exactly that. It's a two to three expect it year time horizon and it's hey should i cash out my investments to pay cash for the property or do i take a small mortgage or, or what do i do so you know there's a couple of things that don't often or don't immediately spring to mind for people because if you're sitting in a property that's largely paid for or mortgage free you can access the capital in that property by using a line of credit and use that to fund the second property and from an accounting perspective there's a principle of matching if you're matching your debt to an asset and there's some efficiency to that. So if you're expecting that, yeah, I'm going to liquidate this property in the next two to three years, put a, a line of credit against it that's going to be paid off at the eventual sale, then you've got carrying costs, call it 3%-ish over that time period. And that can be a relatively efficient way to, and some people don't think of that. So I don't have any money out of my house until I sell it. No, easy. You can access that. And it's a rather, it's a rather efficient and effective and cheap way to borrow. And, you know, that is one option that you have. I can just add some numbers to that, Colin, just to maybe make it a little bit more real for people. Well, let's say your home today that you're living in is a million dollar home and it, you have zero debt on it, but you do have a line of credit. And, and I know you're laughing because you're like, well, this guy must live in Toronto, a million dollar home. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly that's what you're thinking. That, that, that's, that's why I'm laughing. Oh, the Toronto partner is going to talk to you now. <laughs> <laughs> I use that because it's a nice round number. Anyway, maybe it's 500,000, maybe it's a million, whatever. Let's call it a million for simplicity's sake. You have a million dollar home, fully paid off. You have a line of credit on that property. You're looking to buy a cottage. You can use the equity, the line of credit that you have on your current home to pay for that second property. So let's say it's a $250,000 cottage. You borrow 250,000 on your line of credit on your home, pay for that second property. When you sell your home, you pay off that $250,000 line of credit and you bank the rest of the money. That's exactly how the mechanics work, right, Colin? Yep. The, the numbers can change depending on where you are in the country, but yes, Josh, Josh speaks the truth. And I don't want to go too far in the weeds because this could turn into a five hour podcast. This even works if you have a small mortgage against the property. So yep. if you happen to have a million dollar property, cause you live somewhere close to Toronto or Vancouver 
and you've got a $100,000 mortgage against it that you haven't quite paid off, and you go, no, I can't borrow against it. No, you can. You can take you know some of that equity out to do that. Now, again, the, the benefit to that is that, again, you're matching up the debt with the, you're doing it at an inexpensive rate, for sure. It tends to be the cheapest way to borrow money. And it's the most flexible because with a line of credit, if your plan doesn't work out and things don't happen exactly in two years, you're okay. You know, if they happen in six months instead of three years, you're, there's, you're not locking yourself into anything. One, one other way people sometimes when they get in front of their, their mortgage specialist, they'll say, oh, I'll take a five-year mortgage. What you just did was lock yourself into uh, a five-year obligation. And if you decide you're selling the property in three years, you could face early payment penalties. So... Again, that's why we, we talk about using line of credit because, you know, clients tend not to have things happen exactly the way they plan. And, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men are just about equal. So give yourself some flexibility. Don't put yourself in a position to be paying a $6,000 interest penalty on something because you didn't know what the hell you were doing when you made this plan. So, you know, keep that in mind as well. And that's why we, we, we refer to lines of credit, even if they're going to offer you like a half a percent lower for locking it in for five years, that's probably not in your best interest. Most of the time, talk to your advisor. This is an advice. Sure. So let's call and say that I'm somebody that doesn't have a line of credit available to buy that second property, but I do have some investments. I do have some other assets. What options do I have at that point? Do I cash in my investments? Do I go to the bank, try to get a new mortgage? What should I do? And again, this you're going down through the list of let's tackle them one at a time. So if you have investments, it depends on what. So if all of your money is invested, RSPs are taxable when you withdraw them. So cashing money out of an RSP has got huge tax consequences, and that's really not likely to be smart financially. Now, if this is your absolute dream property, and it overlooks the lake that you and your grandfather used to fish in, and you were absolutely hell-bent to get it regardless of anything, then I, okay, yeah, yeah, cash out your RSP. Financially, it's probably a really stupid move, but spiritually, maybe it's the thing you need to do. And I'm exaggerating to make a point. It really depends how motivated you are as to whether cashing out any money out of an RSP makes any sense. Typically, and especially in pre-retirement. Once you're into retirement, then while cashing an RSP, it makes a little bit more sense, maybe. But again, any lump sum you take out of there is going to have tax consequences. Then, you know, you go from there to the next likely account to have is a TFSA. So Josh, would you recommend pulling out of a TFSA for something like this? TFSA is nice because we talked about flexibility before. TFSA does give you a lot of flexibility. And the beauty of the TFSA is the TF, the tax-free. You can pull money out tax-free. So if you're looking for funds and tax is uh, important to you, as it should be, uh, TFSA might be a really good option for that. Now, so just to bring it full circle, you really have three options in terms of your investment accounts. You have your RSP, which is going to be fully taxable when you pull it out. You have your TFSA, which is going to be tax-free if you pull money out. And then you potentially have a non-registered investment, also known as a cash account or a margin account, whereas if you withdraw money from that, maybe taxable, maybe not, depends on how much growth and unrealized capital gains that you may have in that account. So you have three buckets depending, and each one's going to have slightly different tax consequences of making that decision. TFSA potentially is the most tax efficient or lowest tax, I'll call it, way to do that. And the other advantage to TFSA is when you pull money out, you gain that contribution room back so you can put the money back in. So typically, if you've got the three accounts, you've got a regular investment account and a TFSA, 
And if you're fortunate and have a whole bunch of unrealized gains, and I'm going to take a moment here to reinforce with people, that's what I hope your problem is. Because if you're invested with us, I hope you have a lot of unrealized gains. You can get angry at me for paying tax and that's fine. I'll just giggle because you're either going to get angry at me for losing you money or you're going to get angry at me for taxes. Get angry at me for taxes. But in that situation, it may be, hey, I don't want to you know, trigger all these gains right now. So I'll pull some out of my TFSA. And then over the next couple of years, I'll use my, non, my non-registered funds or my regular investment account to gradually top up my TFSA and kind of control that tax bill over a couple of years. So you can actually get the money back into the TFSA. Typically, what we would advise people is to spend money that's invested outside of a TFSA first, because that you're going to pay tax on that money as it grows. The money inside your TFSA, you get to pull out tax-free. So typically, that's from a long-term investment perspective, that'd be the last place that we would want you to pull from. So again, this is part of what it is balancing the immediacy of, okay, what's the tax situation this year? And then taking a look at whatever your investment time horizon is over the next 5 to 7, 20, 30, 40 years and say what's best over that time period. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. What, what can we do this year versus what can we do going forward? Yeah, just to be clear, you can re-contribute any amounts that you withdraw from your TFSA the following calendar year. Yeah. You can't withdraw from your TFSA 50 grand and say, well, I'm going to put that 50 grand right back in next week. Can't do that. You got to wait till the next calendar year. You can. You just get fined. Right. You shouldn't. <laughs> so Colin, you, you did a good job, I think, covering the financial aspects of how you make the decision, how you make the decision to come up with that money. Before you even get there, are there any non-financial reminders that you usually provide to clients? Like, hey, have you thought about this before you buy a second property? There's a couple of these come to mind. One of the existential uh, risks in what we're talking about here is client calls up and says, I need $200,000 out of my investments and I'll put it back in six months time. Now that's that you're now incurring some market risks. There's a risk to that. Now, again, it's not horrible. It's not necessarily a showstopper, but that's way different than borrowing $200,000 for six months and paying it back. Having 200,000 or 300,000 out of the market for six months. Yeah, you can see that can make a material difference. So given the two choices, typically if it's a short-term need, borrow money for the short term. And if it's a longer term need, then cashing on investments can make more sense. But I think Josh, what you're trying, that the path you're trying to get me on is the whole, can I really afford it? And, you know, am I really, is this really accomplishing my goal? So I can get into start telling stories about people who are trying to buy a property that their grandkids can enjoy when there's a 3% chance their grandkids will ever go there because they don't live in the side of the country and you're going to spend all the money for this property. And I walk really gently when I see those kinds of things happening because I'm going, I'm here to do math. Yeah, This isn't going to get you where you want spiritually, but I'm not your spiritual advisor. I'm just going to do math for you. Buying a property, expecting that there's going to be utility in that property for other members of the family, I've seen to be a fraught. Uh, decision. And from a lifestyle perspective, maintaining multiple properties over the long term does tend to bother people eventually. That I've seen creep into the equation. And you did a good job earlier, Josh, of explaining some of the carrying costs that can actually be material and impact your financial situation. And not always, they're not always apparent because people always forget about 
maintenance and oops, the creek flooded and oh, the basement flooded. And if you have one property that you've got one set of risks, you have two properties, you've probably at least doubled your risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, for me, the lifestyle thing is material. And I think it's just something, again, we're not spiritual advisors as it's glad that you put it that way, but you need to consider what the impact is of having two properties in your life. If you're going to spend every weekend at the cottage in the summer, then yeah, buying a second property could make a whole lot of sense for you. If it's summer where you want to spend four weeks a year, then you may have other options that are going to be a lot more cost-effective for you. I'm not saying it's going to accomplish what you want necessarily from, oh, yes, I have some this place that I own, some place that I live and I can go there whenever I want. But if you can, for example, rent a place for four weeks a year and that's giving you what you want from that, that second property, I'll, I'll call it that, then that might be a lot more effective way to do it than to actually spend money on a down payment, spend money on legal costs, spend money on property tax, spend money on utilities, spend money fixing the basement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I sat down with a, a friend one time and we did the math because he had hit that point in life where he was still working towards the end of his career and they, they nailed it. They had the properties that they thought they should have and they were very super proud and excited. They're very property proud people and we're playing cards one night and this guy was just exhausted. So we sat down, we helped him do the math. He spent 21 and a half hours per week mowing grass, either driving somewhere to mow the grass or actually mowing grass. And this is while he's working full time. I said, so how much time are you spending enjoying all of this property? Then it was a, a bit of a moment for him that he you know, maybe said, hey, look at the cost of upkeeping these things is maybe more than I intended. But one thing we glazed over, Josh, I think that deserves a little bit of you know, a comment is the other kind of additional property purchase for somebody says, Hey, this is a great investment. Sure. Yeah. We, we didn't really spend a lot of time on that. And we've, and you can go back through previous podcasts and you know, we've done different podcasts on investing in real estate or commented on such, but this is the time to bring it up to reinforce the whole, you know, how much of your net worth are you going to tie up in one asset class? And it's an asset class with a certain set of, of attributes. Not being very liquid is, is a big one. Having risks with regards to valuations that are interest rate sensitive might be a, a way of, of framing that. But also with very significant specific risks involving the, the immediate surroundings of where you buy a property and the economic conditions there that may turn it one way or the other. So we always talk about how much of your net worth is tied up in real estate. And just understanding that there, there are risks with that. So if 30% of your net worth is in real estate, that's one conversation. If 95% of your net worth is tied up in real estate, that's a different conversation. And sometimes people choose investing in real estate because they can see it, they can feel it, they can touch it, they can walk around in it, they understand it. And they, the stories and the, the press on it is largely positive, but I, that does gloss over a lot of the real risks that they're taking on and doing something like that. If you listen to our predictions podcast, I'm quite sure that sometime this year, somebody's going to tell you that real estate is the best investment you can possibly make. We're a little bit more guarded than that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for me, one of the things that's recurred over and over in my career and working with clients is life doesn't go in a straight line. Cash is king. And if you've got liquidity, you can deal with a lot. If your money is tied up in an asset that's not available to you, then it's not uncommon that at some point in your life, you have a regret over that. You're wishing that you didn't have the money 
necessarily tied up the way it is. So it's a balancing act and we'll absolutely, we do walk our clients through advising them as to what reasonable numbers are for expectations and what a reasonable allocation. And some of them even listen to us, right? Some don't. But it's, it's to, to be cautious. And again, we're not predicting the future, but it is, it's possible we could see an interest rate move. And if you are financing to do this, you could see a mortgage renewal that comes in with significantly higher payments, which is a risk. I'm not saying it's a probability, it's a risk. And these things all should be factored into any conversation about picking up the second property. But for me, if it's a temporary need, and I guess this is my, if it's a temporary need, like next six months, next year, maybe two years that the money's needed, that leads me to say cashing out money out of the market to do this it introduces an additional level of market risk that maybe doesn't need to be there. Low cost of borrowing may make that the better way to do it. If you're getting into a longer term, and again, I'm not going to give you an exact number because it really depends on the situation and the day you ask me, but you start talking about five years out going on, maybe if it's a five-year thing, then yeah, we're making it an allocation of capital here that isn't, this is more of a systemic change. And maybe then that leads us back more to, yeah, cashing an investment out might make more sense, but it'll also come back to what percentage of your net worth are we talking about? What other goals do you have? How close to the line are you with accomplishing your other goals? And all the other things that go with it. Did I cover everything, Josh? Well, I think the last thing that I would add is when you have second properties, and this is going back to the tax impacts of this, your second property is going to be taxed on any capital gains that you have on that property. So we've been talking about tax a lot. It's a lovely thing. We all have to deal with it. But one of the, the mechanisms you have at your disposal when selling a property is the principal residence exemption. And the principal residence exemption exempts your quote unquote principal residence from capital gains tax when you sell it as of today. And the lines of what is your principal residence are a little bit murky. So the tax guidance is really just stating that any home or any property that you own where you spend a substantial amount of time each year can be considered your principal residence. So this is again, where I'm going to go say, talk to your accountant, talk to the professional in your life that can guide you to do these things well. But if disposing of a second property would likely you will be doing at some point uh, during your life or not at the end of your life, you will have some flexibility potentially around what you consider your principal residence and how you optimize that consideration for tax purposes. All right. Let me smack everybody down a little bit here. So nobody goes and tries to think they're smarter than the system. You get one, you don't get two. You and your wife don't get two separate ones. You can't have one principal, two principal residents at the same point in time. So you get one, not two. It's not two per family. Your cat doesn't get one. Your kids don't get one. If you give it to somebody else after you've had it for 20 years, that means you had it for 20 years and the whole 20 years worth of gains doesn't go to the other person just because you gave it to them. There's no way around it. Sorry, there's all kinds of way around it, but if you get caught, the people who catch you aren't going to be happy and then they're going to make you not happy. So don't rock the boat too far. Don't push, ask questions of your accountant. They will walk you through exactly what you can and cannot do. And don't think you're smarter than the system and you're going to game the system and end up having three principal residences. In fact, the current, the current writing that's going on with the whole even flipping houses thing. The government is, is pretty pissed off at that because they can gain a lot of 
political capital by coming down on evil people, flipping houses, making houses too expensive. They're paying more attention to this than they have in the past. And they're crankier about this. And they're allowed to be crankier about this because the general opinion of the population is those people who are cranky with or doing things in the system, we should be cranky with them. So you get one, you don't get two. Your wife doesn't get one. Your cat doesn't get one. Your dog doesn't get one. You get one. Be careful. Don't push the envelope. We've had, I think, three disclaimers in this podcast now, Colin. That's great. And I think they're still going to attack one at the end, but we'll be fully disclaimed. Big wrap up. We've given you some of what you need to consider in purchasing an additional piece of real estate during this podcast. We've not given you nearly enough t- to draw a specific conclusion in your situation. That's why there's room for people like us in the world. We have given you some stuff to think about and talk through before you come talk to us or whoever you're speaking to. So use it as such. And we look forward to having a chat with anybody if they ever want to give us a ring and have this conversation. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.